On today's episode, I spoke with Anthony Pieri about B2B positioning, messaging, and value propositions. Anthony is a partner at Fletch PMM, and he helps early stage founders position their products and translate that to website messaging. So let's dive right into this episode. So let's let's start the kind of basics, the foundations. You're um, you're with Fletch. I'm curious from a PMM standpoint. What are the kind of common challenges that you're seeing early stage founders face, particularly with positioning right now? I would would love to kind of just start there and then build on positioning and messaging from there. Yeah, great question. So essentially the biggest challenge that we see with founders is they don't have enough data to make an informed decision about how they should position. So combine that with the fact that they usually, if they've raised venture capital, the venture capitalists are looking for massive returns. So they're had, they had to convince the venture capitalists, this is going to be a billion dollar company. We're going to dominate this giant market. And so most of the time, these giant markets that they're going after, there really isn't a real thing as a giant market. Most of the time, it's just a collection of market segments. And so trying to position to your broad total addressable market is almost impossible. And so what ends up happening is that founders, they know they want to get this giant market domination to become this billion dollar company to meet their VC's expectations, but they can't go after everyone at once. And so what they try to do is either they'll position loosely across a bunch of different things. They'll say, we help this group and this group and this group and this group, and we do this and that. And they become like the, we're everything for anyone. And that's effectively anti-positioning. It's, it's the refusal to position. And so what ends up happening is they don't position for anyone. And so their pro- product is super hard to explain. It's like broad and vague and no one quite knows what it is or who it's for. And then they never make any meaningful progress to actually getting this giant market, which is really a collection of market segments. And so what we always coach founders to do is to go back to a lean startup mindset, which everyone loved like 10 years ago and now no one likes it anymore. But it's that thought about saying, we're gonna choose a smaller sub-segment first and we have a version of their minimum viable products, the MVP. We say you take a minimum viable positioning and you say, I'm gonna position for this segment knowing that I'm probably gonna have to pivot. I may realize that it's not quite the right one, but if you don't, position for a segment, you'll never actually figure out if it's going to work or if it's not going to work. Using this broad generalized message, um, someone gave the example in one of my LinkedIn posts where it was like, it's the difference between casting a, a fishing rod after a specific fish that you're trying to get or doing like a big broad net and just seeing what you collect. And I was like, but the problem is when you do the big broad net, you usually don't collect anyone. So it's actually like casting a big net filled with holes. So it's like the choices are stay broad, stay generalized, don't position and pretty much die. Or what we would say is start sequencing, testing different versions, position for this group, position for this group and try to get some early signals of success and then lean into it. Do do you, at, at your firm, do you feel like you have any framework, formula or equation for what great positioning would look like? If, if you had to boil it down to first principles and maybe like a statement or equation that people could fill out that would get them on the right track. What, what comes to mind there? Yeah, and it usually comes down to, are you positioning around uh, a specific use case 
or are you positioning around collection of use cases? Usually that can help be a good starting point. But when we think about like the market segment, you need to know, am I positioning around a specific type of company? Am I positioning around a specific type of person, like a persona? Or am I positioning around a specific use case or some combination of the three? And if you can get really, really clear on at least one of those three things, and then, then that allows you to create the opening for how you talk about your product. So for a while, we called this minimum viable positioning. And essentially, we would have you choose four elements about the market and then four elements on the product. And you don't have to have all of them. You just need at least one from the product, one from the market side. So on the market side, it's really like, is it a person, a specific person you're going after? This is a product for sales teams. Is it a type of company? It's for small businesses. Um, is it around a specific use case, what they're trying to do? Um, and then, or could it even be a, uh, uh, on, the, on the product side, then you're really trying to say, are you either a product category that is well-known? So like, for example, if you say you're created a CRM, saying you're a CRM isn't really positioning you for anything. It's just a product category. But if you say we're the CRM for dentists, now, now we're, we're getting somewhere. Now we're looking at a true positioning in the market because you have one definitive element on the product side, one definitive element on the market side. Uh, but you might not have a product category yet because you might be in a new emerging category that isn't defined uh, very well in, by the current solutions, in which case you actually want to show how do you address a specific use case on the product side. So it might be a collection of capabilities um, that aren't perfectly defined in any product category yet. But if you talk about your product capabilities related to one of those market elements, either the persona, the company type, or the use case, you can create a really strong positioning. So like, for example, in the early days of Uber, um, Uber ride sharing wasn't really a category, but they were saying, we're going to target people, or maybe it was Lyft, actually. I think Lyft was trying to get uh, rides for like college students. So they picked like college students and then there wasn't like a ride sharing category. So they said, we'll help you get from point A to point B by having someone come pick you up. And it was basically like a, a brief summary of the product's capabilities attached to a specific use case attached to a specific persona. And so across those dimensions, you end up creating a pretty strong and compelling uh, positioning, even in the early stage when you don't know everything and you may have to pivot. So, so you brought up this idea that you start with a minimum viable position. And if you can combine these elements, great. If you can at least get clear on one, all the better, whatever, whatever you can do. And then you kind of iterate from there. But at a certain point, how do you know when you're ready to graduate onto a broader position or a different position? I think it really comes down to your growth model. And if you are a, for example, me, me and my partner, we work with founders of early stage B2B SaaS startups, usually in horizontal companies. So we picked a very hyper-specific niche. I mean, we have like 10 more qualifiers. You should have raised X amount of money and your team makeup will look like this. And so when we publicly position for them, we know based on our growth goals that if we dominate that segment, we will be a very profitable two-person consultancy. Uh, versus if you're more of a horizontal company and you basically want to unlock lots of different uh, markets at the same time, then going very specific on a use case and seeing how many people who have that use case you can win over. So it, it, really, it really depends. But what you're looking for is repeatability. So we used to work for a company, an agency that does custom services. And by definition, custom services are different every single time. So we never had repeatability because everyone's problems were completely unique and the approach was always completely unique how we solve them. So I think with most companies that don't want to do that and they want to scale really big, you kind of know you found your spot when it's like, I have repeatability. I know that I can pull these levers 
and get people to come through the door and I'm going to close X amount. And then it becomes a scaling question. Well, how do we actually just take that from where we're at now, get it to the next level? And it might be the scaling of we're going to go more into this one segment and just, you know, turn up our advertising or run more content or whatever it is, scale it up somehow to get more of that group. Or sometimes it can be, no, we're actually going to say, we know that this use case is really powerful. So we're going to layer on more adjacent market segments that share that same use case. Uh, because we've proved it out in this one. Now let's try to start layering on the other ones. So two concepts is we've talked about positioning so far. And another one that kind of ends up getting thrown into the same ring, even though they're different things, is messaging. So I do want to talk about those two kind of in tandem. When I guess the, the question would be, how do you translate the product positioning that you have into messaging, whether it's for your website, whether it's for, um, you know, prospecting or whatever it is, how do you translate positioning to messaging? Yeah, so it's usually positioning is sort of where do you want to play? What do you want people to compare you to? How do you want to show up? What space do you want to occupy in the customer's minds? And then the messaging is really the vehicle to actually communicate it to them. So we think about really the outpouring of positioning as your value propositions. So if we're positioning for this group in this specific way, the value propositions are how do we actually make the argument to this group that they should use our solution? And so it's really trying to build the bridge from the product to the market where you say, hey, market segment, you're probably doing this use case in this specific way. And that's probably leading to X problems. And then we come in with Y solution that actually solves and, and removes the limitations of how you're doing it today. So our value propositions are kind of where the messaging gets expressed or sorry, the positioning gets expressed as messaging is through the value proposition. And we see that as targeting groups of people that are trying to do something, we would call that your use case. What are you trying to do? And then really anchoring your product's unique capabilities against the limitations of how they're solving that use case today. So if we use the example of Calendly, you use Calendly to book, uh, book calls, uh, meetings online. And so if you said the use case was schedule meetings, and that's a pretty broad use case shared by a lot of people, if you tie it then to what is the current way that people would accomplish that use case? It's usually sending emails back and forth. Hey, what about these times? They look for you. No, that doesn't work. How about these times? And then anchoring saying, well, what are the limitations of doing it that way? Well, you're likely to send times that the other person can't do, and they're going to send times that you can't do. And so what problems result from that limitation? It takes really long to just book the dang meeting. And so when Calendly comes along and makes their value proposition, hey, now, you can share your calendar and let them book directly on your calendar. It's a direct removal of those limitations where the limitation being you can't see which dates are going to work in advance. Now with that capability that you can share the calendar with bookable spots, you actually remove the limitation. And so you can actually promise this benefit that's the direct reversal of the problem. The problem being it's so slow to get a meeting booked. The benefit of using Calendly's main uh, capabilities is that you can book meetings super quickly. And so that end-to-end -end story, what is the use case? How are they doing it today? What are the limitations of doing it that way? And what problems result from that? Tied to, here's my product capabilities that remove the limitations, which leads to these benefit, which is the removal of the problem. That end-to-end -end story is really like one of your value propositions, the argument for why someone who you've positioned for should actually use your product in the marketplace. Now, I love that because I think, especially in B2B and in SaaS, you'll, you'll hear value propositions almost talk like adjectives, which is not the full story of, of what a value prop is. A lot of SaaS think their value prop is they're fast. 
or they're more efficient or they're more powerful. But a lot of that can be meaningless without, like you said, tying those things together. Um, so in regards to value propositions, you kind of alluded to this, but what are those those kind of key components that make a value proposition compelling versus what value propositions usually are, which is not all that compelling? Yeah, it's really choosing. It's on two sides of the same coin. And one side of the coin, it is saying, where is the pain the biggest in trying to accomplish this use case? And then on the flip side, it's really, where are your products, features, and capabilities the most compelling in removing those pains? So trying to adjust, and likely if you've done a good job in your product development, you've created features that are most directly solving those pains. Where it gets tricky sometimes is we'll work with companies and we'll be looking at their feature set and we'll try to work back from a specific feature to say, well, what actual pains is this removing? What limitations does this build upon? And they'll say, well, I'm not really sure. And they might not have a great answer because they might have just built something that they thought was cool. But in a perfect world, the really, really compelling value propositions are the ones where it's featuring the capabilities of your product that directly remove the blockers and people trying to make progress on a specific use case. Like in that example of Calendly, people who are trying to book meetings but are getting blocked by this back and forth piece of sending times back and forth, being able to explain how the features and capabilities remove that blocker so they can actually make progress on that use case of booking meetings. That's where your value propositions are really going to be the most interesting. Can you think of any resources while we're kind of on the topic of product positioning or messaging value propositions, resources that have really taught you a disproportionate amount of things that you'd be willing to share or kind of if, if somebody were a marketer, not strong in these areas, where you would say they should get started? Yeah, so um, I, I, would, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention April Dunford. She's a great resource for product marketing, for positioning. Um, there's some other really good books out there. Marty Kagan, um, a partner of his, wrote a really good book on um, product marketing overall. I'm blanking on her name, uh, a, a woman author. It's really good. If you look up Marty uh, it's in his family of books that he he has written. So um, that would be another one. But then also me and my partner, Robert, we have actually like a Notion database that we share on our LinkedIn profiles, which is basically all of our best practices sorted by um, positioning and go to market and differentiation and value propositions. Basically everything we think about each of these um, different fields in product marketing, uh, we have it all in one giant Notion database with our Figma templates and stuff like that. So that's another one that we say is just an easy starting point for people to check out. I'd love to dive like micro level into this because one thing is as a marketer myself, you'll learn these bigger skills, macro skills that become kind of what you focus your career on. And then you find ways to integrate those into smaller things that you're building. So whether it's, you know, building out a newsletter for you or a community or whatever it may be, I'm curious how positioning and messaging in particular have kind of translated into the other things that you've built. Yeah, great question. I mean, it's so funny. We use our process to help startup founders with their own early stage positioning, but we also use it for our own consultancy. And so we we try to take our own medicine. And even early on, when my partner and I would discover new opportunities for growth. So for example, we, we, we really leaned into helping companies redo their websites. Basically the messaging on the homepage of the sites, we re help them get it right from a strategic level and then rewrite it. But on the same token, we would get people offering, hey, could you help us with our pitch decks? Hey, could you help us figure out approach to content strategy? And our framework applies to all those different areas. But when we think about positioning for companies in the same way that we say to them, you should pick a niche and really own it. 
we actively would turn those people away, even though it was like, this is money we could be taking. Um, sometimes it was very easy money, but we knew that in the long term, it would water down our positioning so that people wouldn't know exactly when to think of us. Because half the battle is just when someone runs into a problem, how quickly will they associate you as the solution? And so rather than saying, well, yeah, go to Anthony and Robert, um, that's my partner's name, the, the two, go to them if you have a content problem or you have a go-to-market problem or you have a differentiation problem or you have a, you know, any long list of things that we could have really gone into versus saying if you're an early stage startup and you're trying to figure out how to rewrite your website, you know, maybe after a fundraise or something, we wanted to be able to own that problem so that we were the only names that would come up. And that requires dedication to say, I'm going to say no to all these different areas. Um, and it has really been a fruitful strategy for us. We really have seen a lot of big wins in the companies that we get to work for, the amount of clients coming to us for help, the more we see our stuff resonating on social media. Um, it, has, it has paid big dividends and we've ended up making a lot more money than if we had split ourselves and tried to position around a bunch of different people at once. Wait, when you look at uh, B2B versus B2C, I'm, I'm guessing you've skewed maybe more B2B over the long run, but having kind of probably seen a little bit of both messaging wise, what do you think are some of the differences between how you would message or position for a B2B company versus a B2C? Yeah, so I think with B2C, B2C is like the ultimate strategy where you have to really get to a struggling moment. And so you'll see things like, it used to be the old school infomercials that would run late at night. And they would say, you know, you show someone in a, in a moment of struggle where they're trying to put away their, you know, I don't know, pots and pans and they're dropping them all on the floor. And now they have some new organization tool. So that like moment now that's in like my Instagram feed is every single Instagram ad. It's like a moment of struggle, me trying to put my shoes on. And now there's new shoes that just slide on without having to bend down. Um, that type of marketing is so effective and powerful that we actually say as much as humanly possible, B2B should borrow the strategies from B2C. So if you can say like two, just two examples, like if you were selling one password, which is the password management software, if you were going to sell that to an organization, most people in B2B marketing world would say something like the greatest way to increase your security, right? Avoid, you know, being unsecure or something like that. These vague high level messages versus showing struggling moments, make it so much clearer. Like your team just asked you for the 10th time to reset their password to whatever, um, platform they just got locked out of or your one your one employee just got his password stolen again and now you got to do all like those moments of struggle and pain from traditionally would live in b2c land if you can bring those into b2b it just makes the messaging so much clearer so like i think the gold standard of product marketing is usually b2c companies that have a physical product because you can look at it you can see it you can understand it and the translation from the features to value is so easy and you it's all one-to-one -one. Versus when you're selling these really amorphous software platforms that can do a million things for a million different people, um, they're much harder to explain. So what we try to do, like even me and my partner, when we're messaging with these B2B companies, we're trying to make these amorphous software platforms as easy to understand as these physical items that you would see on your Instagram feed. And a lot of that is showing where do they fit in your life? Where do they fit in your workflow, fit in your day-to-day, your -day, showing moments of struggle and then showing actually how they solve those moments. Um, usually that can make your product messaging so much stronger. Yeah, I, lo I love the idea of almost bringing the pain agitate solution framework to life yep. by showing it. Yeah. Last question here, and then, then we'll, we'll cut things off. Just talking MarTech really quick. You've probably worked with a ton of different tools over your career. 
can be right now or it can be over the course of your career, but I'm just curious what tools you could not live without. When I was doing more specific outbound, for a while we were doing outbound sales and I loved um, Apollo. Apollo.io was a great sales engagement tool. Um, for I've used HubSpot for many years. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of it. There's, there's not a great substitute for it. Um, so I think some of these up and coming CRMs are really cool in the ways that they do things. Folk CRM was a really cool um, one that we were looking into for a while. And then now, honestly, most of the stuff that we do is with Airtable, with Notion, and then uh, Fathom, where we record all of our calls and things like that. So those are mainly the tools. Figma, we use, we do almost everything in Figma. We run our workshops in Figma. We run, uh, we make our content in Figma. So I think those are the ones that I use on the day-to-day basis. And those aren't even really MarTech, but you know, those are kind of the ones. Another good one is on LinkedIn. There's a, a, a program called Authored Up, which is basically a, you can, write your LinkedIn post and it'll show it exactly how it's going to be formatted, what it's going to look like in different devices. Uh, that one's really good too. That's probably the most MarTech actual of the, of the mm. ones. 